Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Fellow conspiracy realists, it is no secret that we are all cinephiles. We have different, actually, we have uh, three very different complementary backgrounds in the world of uh, film and fiction. And, uh, and and Paul as well. Uh, Paul is a noted filmmaker who just classes up this show with us. And when we talk about the world of film, even if you are just a casual person, you know, you watch popcorn flicks or whatever, everybody knows Stanley Kubrick. He is so accomplished. He is such a luminary that he himself is the basis of not one, but multiple conspiracy theories, right? He faked the moon landing. He predicted the future in The Shining, or The Shining is about the moon landing, right? What else? Those, well, I mean, those are the big ones. How are you going to go out with eyes wide shut as your last movie? My God. Oh, yeah, it's the most, like, Illuminati movie of all time ever. Illuminati. (laughs) And a little bit. No, no, there's some naughty naughty bits in that one, too. Uh, Kubrick is neat because he's he's not what you'd exactly call prolific. He has a very finite body of work, and each one of them, banger after banger, very different, and yet somehow with a signature kind of style. Um, But, guy, he's just really just the detail. It's, it's all the detail. the detail in every single thing that you see. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, how he would go out and make little models to figure to to figure out the correct lighting for things. That's that's nuts. And and I, I love what you're pointing out there, the quality over quantity argument. I mean, before we get rolling, just I, I've never asked you guys what what in your opinion are um are Kubrick's lesser known films that people should check out. Is older ones, I think. Uh, the Killing is really great. It's a black and white um, film from, I believe, the the 60s, early 60s. And it very much is a similar kind of unreliable, out-of-order story as like Reservoir Dogs. I, would, I think I've read that Tarantino was really into The Killing. But it's like a heist movie. And a lot of people don't know that one. I think it's excellent. Confession, I've never seen that movie, but it's on my uh, list. 
It's very yeah. good. Same. I don't think I've I don't think I've seen it either. But I I do. You know what that reminds me of when you talk about nonlinear um, nonlinear filmmaking. The first time I saw The Godfather parts one and two, uh, I'm going to date myself. I got it from a uh, videotape rental place because those it were three thing. tapes. It was three tapes, I believe. Right? It was yeah. It was a lot of tapes. But here's mm-hmm. here's the deal. I watched it by myself. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. I was pretty I was pretty young, but old enough to know better. Someone had put the tapes in the wrong order in the containers, and I was so I was watching it out of order. And this I was is artsy. Like, yeah, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, and the the time the the storytelling in that moves in and out of time as well. So it does. Wow. Yes. I can't imagine yeah, you, you could have been easily convinced that you were doing the right thing. You, like, you, you that you wouldn't have like stopped and known something was amiss. But it, it was nuts. It was Godfather one and two. Just watched it all straight through, and I'm like, why does Robert De Niro keep showing up? And then disappearing. For oh, you hours. mean you were watching parts of two intermingled with parts of one? Yeah, because I got part uh, one uh, and I two. And That's like even crazier. Four tapes. Yeah. That's funny. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Coppola, another incredible luminary uh, known for uh, an excellent war movie, Apocalypse Now. Kubrick, also one of the top contenders for a, a movie about the Vietnam War ever made, um, Full Metal Jacket. Um, yeah, honestly. But to your point, Ben, there is, you know, he's famous for for his fastidiousness. You know, Shelley Duvall famously was forced to do that scene walking up the stairs with the baseball bat and The Shining like 120 times. I think it made the Guinness Book of World Records for the most takes. Um, And I was like, where are those other takes? He apparently burns them. Right. Yeah, because we wanted to... I I remember we we talked about this past wanting to see these, but... uh, uh, be that as it may, uh, despite the fact that he has a finite body of work, uh, Stanley Kubrick has a, a continuing and indeed in evolving legacy in the world of conspiratorial thought. Dare we say mythology? From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Been married nine years, Frederick. Hey, congratulations, Matt. Been married nine years, Frederick. My name's Noel. Been divorced for a couple of years, Brown. Yes, congratulations, Matt. Been married nine years, Frederick. They call me Ben. Our super producer, Paul One Take Deccant, is away on adventures, but we are joined with our super producer, Casey Pegram, who you may recognize from several other shows here at How Stuff Works. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, having me in today. Thanks for coming on the show, Casey. Most importantly, if you're listening to this, that means you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. And it really is Matt's ninth anniversary. Yeah, that's true. That as we record funny this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah not true. while you're listening, but while we are listening to ourselves. Unless this episode somehow comes out on the same day we record it, which usually doesn't happen unless, quick peek behind this curtain, we got something wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yes, massive congratulations, Matt. Uh, A lot of people may not know that uh, you and Casey have worked together extensively in the past in the film world, right? That's right. We owned a company together for a while there. He shot my wedding. We made (laughs) numerous projects together. Yeah, shout out to Bright Elephant. Oh, dear. 
oh no, now people will know what to search on yeah, Google. There might be some stuff on Google. I don't know. I think the website is no no longer up. But. He shot up your wedding and you guys are still friends? <laughs> he did. But it was it was like celebratory style in the air. It was like a theme wedding. See. It was I think it was a bank heist theme yeah. wedding. Yeah. So yeah. always wanted one of those. And how cinematic would that be? Speaking of amazing segues, guys, we're <laughs> finally getting to an episode that uh, a lot of you have asked us about in the past. I mean, I mean for years. Uh, we're all film buffs here at the studio. And like many of you, we spend a lot of time kicking around theories and discussing the implications of various works as well as their greater influences on later films and filmmakers. Today, we are diving into one of the most well-known conspiracies in the world of cinema. And to do this justice, we have to begin with a single man. His name is Stanley Kubrick. Old Stan the Man Kubrick was born on July the 26th of the year 1928 in the Bronx. You guys ever been to the Bronx? Yes. I have never been there. Often. Oh, wait. We went to the Bronx once, right? Yeah. We were briefly there on that that, that one day. The the hidden buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not such a secret anymore. Yeah. um, His dad was a physician and his mother a housewife. Um, And he was a bad, bad boy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was was notoriously bad at school. In elementary school, uh, he had about as many absences as he did uh, attendance days. He was an outcast once he got to high school. He later claimed, I never learned anything at school and I never read a book for pleasure until I was 19. But when he did, he caught the bug and originally he wanted to either play baseball or be a writer. Imagine how different the world would be if we were talking about Stanley Kubrick, the third baseman, the third baseman, right? And he did have one shining aspect or moment in high school. It wasn't all rainy gray days and sad songs on the radio. Uh, He turned out to be a promising photographer, which I think happens with a lot of people who later go on to become directors, right? They start off with still photography and they have a gift for it. Do we talk about why Casey's on the show today? Because Paul's not here? Well, (laughs) well, no, but he's also – I mean – Come on, guys. Casey's like a film aficionado. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We yeah. went to film school together at Georgia State mm-hmm. University, and Casey was in several of my classes, and he always knew more than the professors, and he would never admit to that, but he he did. Uh-huh. Casey has an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of film lore. So, Casey, Kubrick, he, he shot a lot of stuff early on for, was it Look Magazine? Yeah, Look Magazine. And, um, yeah, he was he was quite the accomplished um, kind of photojournalist, um, even right from the start. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously the, everything that he learned technically about still photography also tends to apply to filmmaking. So he kind of, um, got in early that way. So the point holds, right? Is that something we see with other directors as well, Casey? Yeah, certain directors, you know, every director is different. Some have more of like a theater kind of background uh, or Mm. a writer background, but Mm. definitely the ones that are like more hands-on with the camera and tend to think more in terms of images, photography is like a great great way to get into uh, filmmaking. So he started on this path early, right? Age 16, he's selling photos to look. And the next year, by the time he's 17, they hired him full time. Yeah. And I was just going to say, it's um, obviously a great way to kind of establish your mise-en-scene, you know, where you kind of figure out how to frame things. And what? No. <laughs> your mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene, you know. Um, you figure out, you know, your framing. And, uh, sure. You know, you do it with still photography. You can certainly apply that to moving images as well. Absolutely. And the way you place objects in the frame. Oh, most certainly. And 
we have a little bit of a romanticized picture of his early life because when he wasn't traveling for look as a photographer, he spent most nights at the Museum of Modern Art or MoMA. Yeah, or at a park mm-hmm. uh, playing chess. He yeah. did that a lot. And that that seems really cool. That's way more productive than a lot of things that the average person would do in the evening. Uh, Unfortunately, he was rejected from every college he applied to, every single one full stop. That's because he was a bad boy. He probably (laughs) didn't have the transcripts needed. Yeah, he probably just didn't have the grades, but it seemed like he wasn't a huge proponent of organized education to begin with. However, he did not waste time. Uh, The time he would have spent in college, he spent working on documentary shorts financed by friends and family. These were some of his early works. Yeah, and and he thought he could make a good deal of money making these types of things because there was another company – and Casey, I don't know if you know this but – or I don't know if you have the answer to this question. But there was some company that was supposedly selling documentary shorts for – $50,000, $50,000, something insane, $40,000 at mm-hmm. the time. And he thought, well, I can do that. I can sell those and make a ton of money. I'll I'll spend $10,000, make $30,000 or something like that, only to find out, oh, oh no, you, you can't sell a documentary short for that much money. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know the name of that company, but Kubrick, you know, later later on in his filmmaking career was always kind of a very, very active producer on his films and he controlled the budgets very, very meticulously. And uh, it was all with with an eye towards being able to have the time to do the films the way he wanted them and never have that pressure to just have to get the shot and move on. So um, he he learned very, very early on that you have to control the money in filmmaking. And that's what's going to allow you to like get that perfect shot every time. You know, that's that's a really good point, because that's something a lot of uh, directors when they're first starting out, get wrong, right? That you have to do the unfun stuff as well as the creative stuff. Kubrick's first feature was this military drama called Fear and Desire. It came out in 1953. Oddly enough, he made it without the help of a studio. To your point, Casey, he was somewhat of a one-man band. He was multitasking, not just with the budget, not just directing, but also editing, working sound, doing cinematography, doing things ordinarily would be a group of people's individual jobs. He would also shoot physically, you know, Mm -hmm. with the camera. He didn't, like, have a cinematographer. He was that guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in later films, he did work with cinematographers, but even then, it was kind of understood that the cinematographer was, like, his backup in a way. Like, Mm -hmm. if, if the cinematographer was, not there for some reason, Cooper could obviously step in and, and, and do it just as well. There's an anecdote when he's making his first semi-commercial feature where he was working with a, a very well-respected cinematographer and uh, Kubrick told him the lens he wanted and where he wanted to put the uh, the track. He was going to do, do a dolly shot. And uh, the cinematographer had a different idea about how to do the shot, maybe something a little more conventional. Uh-oh. And so he put the tracks somewhere else and he put on you know the lens he felt like putting on and Kubrick you know, caught it right away and said, I didn't tell you to put the dolly there. I didn't tell you to put, you know, the track mm-hmm. there. I didn't tell you to put the lens on. So do what I said or, you know, you're, you're fired off this film. And from then on, I think that cinematographer knew he could not, like, pull a fast one on Kubrick. Yeah, because he's paying meticulous attention to detail, right? And it's something that shows in his filmography. 
Uh, we know from 57, 1957, just in case uh, we came unglued from time there, to 1999, he made numerous feature films, I believe 10, and th- these include some of the greatest hits, right? Spartacus in 1960, Lolita in 1962, which I do have to say, despite the premise, is a fantastic book by Nabokov. I'm glad you liked it. Did you read it? I read some of it. I watched the versions, the versions of it. Are, is there only one version of there's, Lolita? There's, there's the, a uh, there's like, like the an Jeremy Adrian, Irons. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Adrian Adrian Line version that was like in the nineties or something. It has one of my favorite depictions of a death scene, at least the novel. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the first page, and there's a little bit of a spoiler. Um, the narrator was super unreliable and a terrible person is talking about how his mother passed away and all you learn is there's this parenthetical where it's just like picnic comma lightning and then it moves on it's one, of, it's one of my favorite death scenes he I also think. has one of the best and most redundant names in literature humbert humbert mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. I, which i enjoy quite a lot and th- this aside like lolita is a, a very controversial story yeah, and and it's it's got some hugely problematic things, but Kubrick never uh, never hesitated, I guess, to address controversial themes like Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which made in 1964. That's predictably something that we dig, right? Yeah. And I went back uh, as we were researching. I'm sure I'm sure you guys did too to look at uh, some of great clips from that one in particular. Did you watch the writing, the nuke? Of course. Of course. I have dreams about that. <laughs> Slim Pickens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you got to go, what a way. What a way to go. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. I wonder what it'd feel like. You'd probably just get vaporized instantly. Yeah, I guess. Only after the high of writing the, the thing yeah. down. That'd I guess fun. eventually you'd pass out, though, first, wouldn't you? I don't know. I guess yeah, it depends the, on the elevation. The like, terminal velocity thing. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's, that's a good you. point. Uh, he you also probably wouldn't yeah. be able to hold on to the thing with your legs right. like that. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> guy probably fall right out from the tree. That know? guy was definitely using a thigh master of some sort. <laughs> yeah. He had, you know, he had uh, what's a good phrase? He had saddle riding thighs. Mm. This is getting weird. <laughs> you know, Slim Pickens was uh, was unaware that movie was a comedy. Oh really? <laughs> and he, he was, you know, he's he's kind of known for being like a player in westerns and stuff, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he loved the story, and I think he he had more of like a sincere interpretation of it, and uh, and Kubrick did not disabuse him of that notion. So, and yet, <laughs> and yet he rode the nuke down yeah, yeah, yeah. while waving his hat around yep. in circles, going yep. "Yeehaw!" He didn't he, think that was he was all about it. Yeah. He thought okay. that was sincere. Yeah. Uh, in 1968, Stanley Kubrick releases what remains one of his most popular films, 2001: A Space Odyssey. On a side note here, the first manned moon landing according to the official story, occurred on July 20th, 1968, which will be important later. A mere hours after the Chappaquiddick incident. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, interesting. True. And wow. in case anyone's interested and wants some spoilers for the relatively unspoilable ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey, there is an interview that surfaced recently where Kubrick kind of goes beat by beat about what that ending is supposed to mean. Something that he typically did not do, but this was like mm-hmm. for, I think, Japanese television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was something that never really made it over here until very recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's worth checking out if you want to go over to Esquire and hear Stanley Kubrick explain the 2001 Space Odyssey ending in a rare unearthed video. That's the name of the article which we should post on here's where it gets crazy yeah definitely which is our facebook community page 
hang out with us. Uh, he has other works, of course, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, a personal favorite of mine, Full Metal Jacket. And while he's making these amazing, iconic works of film, he is also, of course, kind of living a life outside of his job, but only kind of. He's married three times. He has three daughters. Uh, in the early 1960s, he moves to the UK and begins to build a reputation as a recluse, almost J.D. Salinger level, uh, but maybe not quite. He avoids interviews. There are barely any photographs of him. None of them are formal. And he spends little time outside of the studio. He looks like you would picture a typical hermit might look. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the beard. Beard, yeah. kind of sh- shaggy, unkempt, yeah. unkempt hair. Yeah. And it should be noted that he takes huge breaks in between feature films uh, as the years kind of go by. And his right. last, like, four films, I want to say, three or four films. Sure. <laughs> Sort yeah. of like Terrence Malick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it takes him a long time between projects, and there is more history there of, of other films he tried to get off the ground and for one reason or another didn't mm-hmm. end up happening or he decided he didn't want to make. Probably the biggest one is Napoleon mm-hmm. that he was going to do, I think, after 2001. And he spent years and years kind of creating this like day-by-day account of Napoleon's life. He had this whole like index card catalog system mm-hmm. of where Napoleon was on like every single day of his life just about. Wow. And – um he made, you know, he put years of his life into it, and uh, ultimately there was other Napoleon movies that came out in the same period that did not perform well at the box office, and he couldn't get it made after that. You know, I've never seen a Napoleon movie. Have you guys seen a Napoleon movie? I've seen Bill and Ted. Yeah, <laughs> but you'd think that, you know, maybe he's just an unsympathetic character. He's very unsympathetic. Well, okay, that must be it. But no, but Casey, to your point, so with this whole methodical card catalog system, probably a bit of a, a neurotic Mm, a, yeah. a little bit um, of a stickler and obsessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For sure. uh, he there was a sweet thing I found in the research while he was living in the UK and becoming increasingly reclusive. His sister would tape football and baseball games for some of his favorite teams, like the New York Giants, and she would send them to she would send these to him in the mail. Uh, so he still had that human connection. Stanley Kubrick dies in his sleep on March seventh, nineteen ninety nine. Mere hours after delivering a print of Eyes Wide Shut, and this would become his last film, but it's where our story really begins. And we'll get to it after a word from our sponsors. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. 
on-demand, tempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. We're back. So these are just the brief highlights, very brief highlights, as it were, of Kubrick's life and times. And there's much, much more to his story off screen. In fact, uh, even in the on screen stuff, entire volumes of literature have been dedicated to the story behind a single Kubrick film like Full Metal Jacket or The Shining or, or 2001 Eyes, or 2000. Oh, yeah, especially or Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I always felt like that movie was uh, secretly, not so secretly, about the Illuminati. <laughs> you did, eh? Kind of, eh? <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a surprising amount of fringe journalists and researchers who believe that. Well, they tend to agree with your point, Noel. They believe that his most influential work has little or nothing to do with what the public perceives as his oeuvre. <laughs> What, what the hell is that? It's your body of work. Yeah. In, in it's your French. tight, tight body of work. <laughs> well, well can we really fast, just Casey, I think one of the reasons, just before we get into all this, yeah. one of the reasons that people feel that way is because uh, he dealt a lot with visual symbols, symbology, things that represented other things that would mm -hmm. be in a shot or the shot would be a certain way um, to speak beyond just what is occurring, what you're seeing on screen or what's what you're hearing. Yeah. 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 I think I think Kubrick, again, going back to kind of his his origins in, in still photography, was was all about the image and composition and symbology and um kind of going into the deeper layers of storytelling, you know, Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, that kind of stuff. The idea of archetypes and um these kind of like primal tendencies in, in narratives and, and things that recur in stories over and over throughout, you know, time. So he, mm -hmm. he was kind of tapped into a lot of that, I think. I've said it before, got to say it again. There's an excellent article uh, by Cormac McCarthy that addresses this concept of symbol as communication beyond articulated language. It's called the Kekule problem. Where did language come from? We should totally post that. Casey, mm -hmm. if you would love this. That sounds great, actually. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of something that occurred to me. Kubrick, once he was living in England and, and sort of, you know, being a little bit more 
perhaps reclusive. He was having like tapes of American football games and baseball games, I think, sent over to him from mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but in one interview, he actually says that the commercials interested him more than the games themselves because just something that could tell a complete story within the span of 30 or 15 seconds the economy of that, of means, of like communicating that in just a handful of images in the best advertising um, really fascinated him. I would love to see him review commercials. I've always felt that way about like jingles or like making a little 10, 15 second theme tune mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. show. I had dabbled in that with some of our podcasts. It's really fun to try to communicate a kind of beginning, middle and end of something in a very finite uh, short amount of time. Can you guys imagine the multiverse where – Kubrick just was working for Procter and Gamble or some other huge <laughs> yes. company and just making commercials. He'd be one let's, of the best. Yeah. Let's write one. Oh, let's do it. I'm not kidding. Let's <laughs> let's write a Stanley Kubrick ad. Okay. Somehow. Well, okay. So these people, these journalists and researchers who do uh, read something in the tea leaves or feel that they have divined something beyond the surface story of these films, uh, they argue that. His films are just a message leading to his larger secret great work, which I know is a loaded term. They argue that Stanley Kubrick participated in some of the world's most insidious cover-ups and that this participation later tortured him, so much so in fact that he hid clues to the truth in his own work. Here's where it gets crazy. First and foremost, and most well-known conspiracy involving Stanley Kubrick is what? The moon landing that never was, 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 was. (laughs) Yeah, no human beings ever actually landed on the moon, they say. Instead, the U.S. government secretly contracted with Stanley Kubrick to film a fake moon landing of high enough quality to fool the world and then swore him and everyone else involved to secrecy on pain of death. Well... That's obviously true. Let's move on. No, there's more to parse out here. (laughs) We can tell you how the story began to circulate. So it began uh, being taken seriously by people uh, after Stanley Kubrick's death. This was not around when he was alive. And the most prominent mentions we can find of someone seriously alleging this come from a writer and director named Jay Wiedner, who began publicizing what he saw as clues supporting this concept. And we can we can dive into this. We do want to warn anyone who hasn't seen The Shining for some reason, go watch it now. Uh, this is going to examine in detail aspects of The Shining. It's not major spoiler territory, but there are a couple of spots that are troublesome. But surely both the movie and the book are well beyond the statute of limitations sure. for spoilers at this point. But <laughs> but The Shining is one of those movies that even if you haven't seen it by now, you should see it before we, anyone spoils it. Oh, you, but absolutely. You, but you probably also know the story exactly, already. Yeah. You know, it's so it's almost a, a trope. It's almost an agglomeration of tropes at this point. But still, I guess we should do the countdown for spoilers. 40. 39. <laughs> it's that one about the dude that plays piano and, and kind of loses his marbles, right? Yep, that's the one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the actual name. It's, it's called Shine. Oh, <laughs> Shine. That's Surely. silly. Silly joke. Jeffrey Rush's first big picture. Mm-hmm. Nice. Spoilers, Jeffrey Rush's in Shine. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> if, that's, if, that was, if that was the question you wanted answered about. Oh, here's that. a spoiler for Shine. Mm-hmm. His, father, his father's father breaks his violin. Mm. And that, oh. that makes him into a bitter old man. Turns him into a penis. Well, no, it, <laughs> it does. 
So back to the shining okay. uh, with an ing. Uh, in Jay's assessment, Jack and Danny Torrance, the dad and the son, represent different aspects of Kubrick himself. So Danny is the gifted, youthful, idealistic director who's in tune with a greater message. Danny in the story is psychic. And so symbolically, that's Kubrick being capable of seeing things no one else can see. Danny also has a knack for telling people things that should ordinarily be kept quiet. Jack, on the other hand, the father, is the, quote, practical, pragmatic guy who wants to be a great artist, and he is apparently willing to do anything to accomplish his goal of becoming a writer. So to support this, Jay cites several perceived physical similarities. Jack's practice of smoking Marlboros, the same kind that Kubrick smoked, uh, to the earlier point about his appearance, he says Jack looks unkempt, unshaven. As the film progresses, he begins looking more and more like the the behind-the-scenes footage of Kubrick. Kubrick. (laughs) And uh, yeah, (laughs) it's – I mean it is – Interesting. Kubrick also was known to carry an axe around set and <laughs> yes. wave it wildly at people to yeah. get them to do what he, he said. Shelly Duvall, get back over here. When oh, I say boy. action, go. True story. He never used a doorknob. <laughs> Only axes his whole life. <laughs> Did he have like a metal phobia like you, Ben? <laughs> he, uh, you know, maybe he just had an, a, a pro axe thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, Yes, yes. Uh, the oh, He does look unkempt, and you see this in the behind-the-scenes footage. He and Jack Nicholson playing uh, Torrance become increasingly, I don't want to say decrepit, but wild-looking. And the Overlook Hotel in this reading represents America. It's shiny, it's wealthy, but it is built upon blood and terrible, terrible secrets. Have we talked about the, the baking powder cans? That, Calumet, that, yeah. Calumet comes in a little bit later, but that's something we can touch on now. Well, oh, Let's I, do only, it. I only mentioned it because Ben talks about how it's built on blood money. And, and well, they yeah. mention in the film, I believe, that yeah, it's yeah. built like an Indian mm-hmm. burial ground. Native Americans. When, they, yeah. when, they're, when yeah. they're doing the tour, he says, we had to repel several Indian attacks yeah. while we were building this place. Which that, is just such a throwaway line in there, too. It yeah. makes it more sinister. But visually, um, there's a whole, like, crazy stockpile of Calumet baking soda or powder mm-hmm. that has the, you know, the traditional Indian chief yeah. with the yeah. headdress very conspicuously turned towards the camera. Isn't that right, Casey? Well, it's in profile, and uh, and it's also uh, Halloran, who is giving the tour of the uh, of the kitchen, um, is in the same profile as uh, the Indian. So there's mm. been some suggestion that Kubrick is drawing a parallel visually between, you know, what, what happened historically to Indians and uh, African-Americans as well in the United States. Mm-hmm. But to Jay, it's all about faking the moon landing. To JW. Well, yeah, yeah, yes. In, uh, in this context, it's like this is America. And here is the most important part, right? The uh, – the hotel manager. Mm-hmm. Or at least the the first one we meet, right? He apparently represents the face of the American government, wears red, white, and blue. He has a U.S. flag in his office. He sits in front of an eagle, the power behind the throne, and the lunar lander, the Apollo 11 mission, J notes, was called the eagle. Oh. The deal that Jack makes with this manager, he can pursue his creative interest so long as he takes care of the overlook. And the manager tells Jack his main job is to prevent the Overlook Hotel from looking like it is decaying. 
Yeah, and here we're talking about America again, if we take it in the context uh, that he sees it in, that we're going to need you to fake this thing so it doesn't look like we are the decaying force mm-hmm. within these uh, Cold War powers, which is another big thing here. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so the storm that hits the overlook is, again, according to Jay, representative of the Cold War between the USSR and the U.S. This Cold War and efforts to hide real American technology – flying saucers, in his opinion, are the primary motivations behind the faked moon landing. The Torrance family then in America and Kubrick are trapped in the Cold War. Uh, there's <laughs> there's <laughs> That's nice what pause. they call a pregnant pause. Yeah. 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 There's, a, uh, 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 there's another thing that goes – that ties into the Native American artistic motifs, right, mm-hmm. that are all throughout The Shining – uh, in the room where he, where Jack is attempting to write and going crazier and crazier and throwing that tennis ball, uh, the wall has this Native American motif that, according to Jay, looks like a bunch of rockets about oh, to be yeah. launched. Well, you know, there is – and there's also so much Native American – just imagery and, sure. and there's so many symbols within the hotel. You look at the carpeting in certain areas. Yeah. And I just really quickly, I'd love to ask Casey, if do you think there's any salt to that reading of this film that perhaps the Overlook is in some way the United States? I, I think there's something to it. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the whole Kubrick is guilty about the moon landing and he's kind of addressing that in The Shining. Uh, but I, I do think there is something to the the idea that the uh, the the Overlook Hotel standing in for the United States and the film in some ways being about the past kind of uh, continuing into the present and and kind of never truly being gone. Um, well, I, it's I, a I think, loop the way it's depicted yeah, in the yeah, film. Again, yeah, yeah, spoiler yeah. alert, but you know Jack he's always he's been the always caretaker. been there. He's yeah. always been the caretaker. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you but, notice like at the at the end of the film when when you see that picture of. Jack Nicholson on the wall with all the people in like 1921, I think it is. Yeah. It's July 4th. It's like the 4th of July ball. Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. And my whole thing is why wouldn't Kubrick do this for funsies? You know, it's like it seemed like an odd choice for me anyway to make like this horror movie. It's nothing he'd ever done before. He, he, he It just seemed like kind of out of left field. It, it would make sense to me that he would have kind of not an agenda but some twist on it that would make it a little more fun for him than just doing a traditional – you know, straight up horror film. Yeah, yeah straight yeah. up horror film. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So JW would agree with you and people who think it's about the moon landing would agree with you. Uh, back to a tennis ball, when those ghost twins throw the ball to Danny, he stands. And for the first time in the film, we can clearly see his sweater. It's a rocket with the words Apollo 11 sewn crudely beneath. That's yeah. a smoking gun for the proponents. Yeah, and he says we the viewer gets to see the launch of the Apollo 11 rocket as he's, you know, ascending from sitting down. Yeah, and look, I don't want to write this stuff off entirely, but there are some inaccuracies with his reading. So in the original version of The Shining, Danny experiences this horrible psychic event in room t- 217 – In the film, this occurs in room 237. Jay argues that the average distance between Earth and the moon is 237,000 miles and that this change in room numbers is an allusion to this idea. However, the actual average distance from Earth to the moon is more like 238,855 miles. And that's, that's per NASA. 
Oh, but you know he's working with NASA. Right? <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for someone to say that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's been suggested that um, it was more to do with the hotel not wanting their real room two three or 217 to be uh, – you know, for people to be like scared of staying there. Are you uh, the, part the, of the it, hotel, Casey? The hotel that they used as the uh, the exterior of the hotel in the film. A lot of the interiors are on a set. Isn't mm-hmm. that the? Um, isn't that in Oregon? Somewhere? Yeah, the, yeah, I think the, so. The something Timberline Lodge. Yes. Someone told me that's yeah, what it yeah, was. Yeah. I have a hat from there. Um, I've got it at the Portland Airport. I may have talked nice. about it on the show before, but someone pointed out that that, in fact, was the the place that was used as that as the overlook in the in the movie. And in a, another kind of really weird coincidence, the the hotel that Stephen King had stayed at that kind of gave him the idea in the first place to write the book uh, is called the Stanley Hotel. Oh, nice coincidence. Probably. <laughs> and and uh, Stephen King, notoriously not a fan of, right, right, of Kubrick's right. uh, film. It was and, very different. It was very different. And I think that really supports the idea that Kubrick was having a little – having a bit of fun. Was doing something in addition, yeah, which I think is an important point. So to Jay and people who agree with him, Room 237 represents the symbolic set on which the Apollo 11 landing was faked. And he believes that due to the nature of shifting perceptions of reality in the room, that as Dick Holleran said, uh, nothing in the room is real. And the fact that Jack later lies to his wife about it, Wendy, claiming he saw nothing in the room is interpreted by Jay to mean that Kubrick lied about faking the moon landing and then said, hey, what's the best way to tell people about this? I should make The Shining. You should have uh, a woman in a bathtub – uh, become very old very fast all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That's what I would do. I got chills. I did too. Uh, so, <laughs> so he, that's a really scary yeah. scene. Oh, it, it is. Upset me so much. I don't I find it. The Shining particularly scary overall. No, yeah, yeah. But that scene yes. sticks with me. When I do, uh, when I do a lot of research, I actually play lo-fi chill wave instrumentals and The Shining on mute. And it makes it makes it a different film, and it, it, it's actually great. Speaking of that, have you seen the the funny spoof uh, trailer for The yes. Shining with featuring Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill, and it's just like makes it look like a total rom com. It just goes <laughs> just goes to show that it's so easy to reframe things with music and just clever mm. cutting, uh, and it's like Shining. <laughs> yes. Mm. So he has uh, uh, some other things for people who believe that the moon landing was fake. Kubrick did it and told us about in The Shining point to other small details uh, like Casey, like you said, with July 4th, which I had no idea. And that that's fascinating. I have to go back and watch it again. And then here's one I, I thought you guys would find interesting. You know, he's typing in the manuscript, he's going crazy, and he just writes over and over again in different formats, all work and no play, makes Jack a dull boy. According to Jay, that should actually be read as not all work, but A11 work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Oh, come on. A11 standing for, of course, Apollo 11. I think we've solved it. Wow. Well, I mean, look, I I don't want to throw – I don't want to throw spurs at uh, JW, but, it, you know, that's reading into things pretty hard. Um, But there are some recurring Apollo 11 themes in the movie, but it was also very much in in the consciousness of the time. You know, the sweater, the rocket pattern and stuff, you know. Um, 
He does. He does throw out a, a, a quick reference in A Clockwork Orange. Also, mm-hmm. there's a character who's talking about man on the moon man and on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. spinning round. That yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. But think about how again, just what you guys said. <sighs> yeah. How massive that is in the zeitgeist from mm-hmm. that moment forward, of and then had a decay rate to the point where we still are interested in talking about it. Literally one of the top five moments in human <laughs> history. Yeah. And I don't know which which one it is. I'm just being conservative. I don't want to say it's the best one mm-hmm. uh, because I, have you? Get, I saw an amazing tuba solo video a while back. Ben, you sent it to me, and I have yet to crack it open. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I should apologize. I get a little fixated myopic, and I think I texted uh, numerous people during the day uh, mm-hmm. This tuba solo. It just said all caps tuba solo and then the link. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, Sorry. couldn't really mistake it for anything it's else. It's great though. Okay. Can, can, we, can we get to the most, yes. my favorite thing about all of uh, this theory? Mm-hmm. And and it's the thing that kind of solidifies it for me because I understand as Casey and we were all saying before the America symbol as the overlook and this deal that's being made that uh, with the main character that subsists. It's all, it has always been there and it will always be there. If you, if you look at it again, all of those things together, this deal that they make, could it be that this is Stanley Kubrick making a deal with the American government in that hotel office that sets up the entire thing, the entire world uh, in which Kubrick then exists? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me that... I I can totally see I could totally see that. Yeah, you know what? You're uh you are persuading me here, Matt. Uh it's still something people debate. I mean, unsurprisingly, not everybody agrees. Yeah. Right? But I don't fully agree, but I it's the it's this is one of those I want to believe things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We still have to get those posters. How many did you say was too many? Thirteen? Fourteen? Thir- yeah, thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. So we'll only get twelve. There's another piece of intrigue that emerges around The Shining uh, in 2015 or so. Clips of someone purporting to be Stanley Kubrick surfaced. And in these clips, the subject appears to take credit for faking the moon landing. He calls it his masterpiece. Uh, He totally owns it and says that he filmed it. However, critics note that several parts of the interview strongly call the authenticity of the footage into question. Yeah, it doesn't look like Stanley Kubrick. It doesn't sound like Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, it's probably not Stanley Kubrick. They said the interview occurred in May of 1999 after he had already died. Yeah, and you can hear the guy who's doing the interview refer to the person purporting to be Stanley Kubrick as Tom and saying, (laughs) "Okay, Tom, let's do it this way. Uh, so that we, I think we can dismiss. Uh, additionally, his daughter, Kubrick's daughter, Vivian Kubrick, uh, strongly objects to these claims and she dismisses them outright. We, uh, we have a statement that she released on Twitter regarding this. VQ111? V-I-K-U yeah. <laughs> uh, and then four ones. <clears throat> and you can, you can read that in full. It's – it's pretty well written. It sounds very reasonable. Uh, one line that we all thought you would really enjoy is where she says, there are many very real conspiracies that have happened throughout our history and are happening presently. I'm only too aware of the dreadful manipulations perpetrated by governments, secret services, banksters, the military industrial complex, etc. But claims that the moon landings were faked and filmed by my father, I just can't understand it. How can anyone believe that one of the greatest defenders of mankind would commit such an act of betrayal? I think Vivian would really like our show. 
I, I hope so. I, yeah, she'd be into it. Oh, uh, thanks, Casey. Uh, so, I follow her on Twitter, so I, she, really? she posts a lot of conspiratorial stuff. Guess what, boys? Follow. <laughs> oh, no, it's official, Matt. That's, she, not, that's, she, not, a, that's right. not a full endorsement because I think she posts some kind of problematic stuff sometimes too. But. Well, we're going to follow in anyway because – She ain't no follow back girl. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was worth oh, it. Oh, boy. Uh, but, of course, there are alternate interpretations of The Shining. There's this great documentary called Room 237, came out in 2012. I remember we all talked about it at work, that examines other analyses of the work. And here are the big ones. This is one that we mentioned earlier. The Shining is about the genocide of Native Americans. And as Casey Noel pointed out, uh, there is a ton of imagery, right, and purposeful framing of shots to support that idea. Other people will say, yes, it's about genocide, but not the genocide of Native Americans. It's about the Holocaust. And then, of course, someone will say, no, The Shining is about faking the moon landing. Someone will say, no, The Shining is a retelling of the Minotaur myth. Okay, is there a, is there a maze in the book? No. No, they're, they're just hedge creatures. There's hedge animals yeah, that come to not, life. Not but, maze yeah, that's one of, the, yeah. one of the big, big changes. And also in the, in the book, the Overlook Hotel explodes because the kid manages to set the boiler, the boiler. off. That's yeah. right. That's right. And it was the first time I learned the word dazzant. Mm. Dazzant. It's, it's one of the last things the possessed uh, Jack Torrance is screaming as his uh, ghost-riddled body dies. Is it some kind of witchy word? It's like it's like you dare not. Oh. You dazzant. Interesting. It was very interesting. interesting. You dazzant dare. Pazuzu. <laughs> Have you seen The Exorcist 2? That's yeah. the name of the, the demon in Exorcist 2. It's Pazuzu. That's all. That's one, all one in three. We are not getting the spoilers out. Hey, you know what we didn't mention? What's that? Because uh, I don't agree with any of the stuff you guys are talking about. I think The Shining is an allegory for leaving or leaving the gold standard. The decline Ooh. of the gold standard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's another thing people have argued. The filmmaker of 237, Rodney Ashton, I believe his mm-hmm. name is, uh, he personally doubts all of these interpretations. And there are a couple of other things that weaken the idea of this moon landing concept just based on the film. Prior to the writer, J.W.'s claims, there were two guys who proposed the idea as a joke on the internet. And then there was a mockumentary that I think we've all seen in this room, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which is – almost a Christopher Guest-style look at uh, the faking of the moon landing. No, I haven't seen I haven't heard of this. Uh, It's pretty funny. It's pretty good. Uh, Problem is, it was often taken seriously, and people will cite it as evidence. Yeah, it's like that vampire documentary, What what We Do in the Shadows. I I mean, Oh, that's great. It's it's real, and people think it's just a mockumentary. It's the inverse, I guess, of this. Yeah, that's a good contrast there, Matt. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm not sure what you guys are doing here. <laughs> okay. I, don't know. I, I think we're going to a commercial break. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> when you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing
implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. We're back. So there's another conspiracy at play here that we we mentioned at the very top of the show, but we didn't really dig into. That is Stanley Kubrick and the Illuminati, a.k.a. Eyes Wide Shut. The last film he made, or almost finished making, right, depending on your interpretation, Mm -hmm. and uh, one that really freaked a lot of people out. Yeah, I think largely because it's the only film to feature Nicole Kidman wiping her bum. (laughs) Oh, is that why? Yep. Well, it, yeah. That was the original title, I think, (laughs) too. The only film. (laughs) Eyes wiping her bum. (laughs) The only film featuring Nicole Kidman wiping her bum. Well, it's a, there are, yes. Nicole wiping her bum aside, there are a lot of things that have been brought up before that perhaps this movie had to do with. The the first one that I read had to do with Scientology and whether or not this whole film was kind of a jab at the, this is not me speaking, this is other people speaking, the cult-like similarities or the cult-like things that Scientology has within it. Uh, Tom Cruise is in it. Well, that's the, well, again, like, also, uh, Vivian Kubrick, who we've talked about, uh, is now a Scientologist. Yes. And the people online will purport that this is Stanley Kubrick fighting against it as like, you've taken my daughter oh, and wow. I'm very upset. I'm making this whole movie exposing you. However, she did not join Scientology until after – at least at the very, very tail end of production on this film. So the timeline's a little tough. Yeah. If he, if you're talking about a man writing a film sure. and then coming up with the shots for it and all of this, that it's, it doesn't line up. 
But having Nicole and Tom as the lead characters, mm-hmm. interesting connection there, perhaps? Perhaps. And weren't you telling us off air that there's this idea of Kubrick making Eyes Wide Shut just to put them through the ringer? Well, I mean, that's been purported by several articles. I don't, Casey, I don't know if you've heard anything about this. But well, there is, there's like, there's one scene in Eyes Wide Shut that feels a little bit weirdly out of place. It's where Tom Cruise is kind of walking the streets of, you know, the, the backlot version of New York that they built in England at night by himself. And, um, he passes these kind of like frat guys and they don't get out of his way and they kind of bump into him. And they kind of like start yelling kind of homophobic stuff at him. And there has been some suggestion that that scene was in there almost as Kubrick's potential commentary on Tom. You know, there's been rumors for years about sure. about Tom Cruise. So, um, you know, just just not even so much Kubrick falling down on one side or the other of that whole thing, but just kind of. Uh, I don't know, prodding Tom Cruise and like the control of his image and mm. all that kind of stuff. But isn't also is, – isn't Kubrick very well known for putting all actors through the ringer? Yeah, like absolutely. Like Shelley Duvall on The Shining yes, alone. Yes, yes. Well, and also Scatman Crothers who plays Halloran in The Shining tells a story about having to do some line of dialogue like hello or something like a hundred times and – Finally, uh, kind of crying out and exasperation, Mr. Kubrick, what do you want? And, you know, Kubrick's just saying, I'm just waiting to get it right or, you know, just just keep trying it. Yes. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Toast of London. Well, but it goes goes much, much deeper than that. There's there's a – there's an article in Vanity Fair that discusses specifically – how Kubrick pushed the relationship of Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise on set and off set. There was this fairly, very short sex scene between Nicole Kidman's character and some other man. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kubrick barred Tom Cruise from being on set and they shot it for like six days. And it's this tiny little sex scene. Um, and Tom Cruise was not allowed to be told anything about what was happening. Mm-hmm. Again, this is his wife. Right. And that's a that's one of those like – Things that almost I can see him as a director trying to unsettle both of them on purpose, right? Oh. Test their marriage because in the movie they're married yeah. and then he's testing their actual marriage. And he would have them sit down and do essentially therapy with mm-hmm. Stanley mm-hmm. with the three of them together in a room and talk about their actual marital problems and then work that into the movie. Well, and I made the joke about the the bum wiping thing earlier, not to keep harping on that, but that sort of fed into that too, the idea that he made them kind of behave in 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 the scene as as a married couple would, yeah. you know, and go about their business and kind of having gotten past that honeymoon period where you're going to, you know, take a pee with the door open and, and yeah. not worry that your husband's standing right there, you know. These are these are two of the most powerful and famous actors in all of Hollywood at the time at the time that he that he is kind of toying with and and I wonder how much of that is him like I don't know just really exercising the power yeah but also at this time you know he's a he's already a legendary director mm-hmm. so he, he's kind of like at the level in in the terms of directing he's kind of like at the level prince was in terms of music people just don't say no to him yeah except after his death. So he um, – the the big question about Eyes Wide Shut, right? Is he purposefully torturing the actors like a cat with a mouse? Uh, is he fighting against Scientology using the language of symbolism? The thing you'll find 
perhaps most curious if if you have seen Eyes Wide Shut before or if you're not too familiar with the story, you want to dive into it, the thing you might find most curious is that many people argue about the cut of the film. Yes, the final cut. Right, right. Kubrick's contract had some hard lines preventing studios from editing his work without his consent. Again, he's still the same very hands-on director he was back in the 50s. Essentially, going through the legalese, his position is it's done when I say it's done, and then when I say it's done, it's definitely done. Mm -hmm. No, No studios intruding. Don't tell me to put in a new actor or some dumb scene with a talking dog. I run the show. And that that carried through even to the marketing of his films. He designed all the posters himself. He cut all the trailers himself. And he was heavily, heavily involved in selling the movie even after he was done working on it. So then he – after his untimely death, these critics and researchers wonder whether the cut that premiered in theaters was the actual final cut he wanted. So were there scenes that might have been left out without his consent or altered? I mean what gives – Casey, yeah. Do you want to well, jump yeah. in here? So there, there is some truth to this in a certain sense. Um, I mean, it, maybe it goes deeper if you if you buy into that theory. But, you know, just sticking to like what is definitely known to be definitely true, Kubrick was contractually obligated, even though he had Final Cut, he was still contractually obligated to deliver an R-rated film for the U.S. market. And since he died, you know, just as he had kind of finished his like Final Cut, um, he never had a chance to kind of go back and forth with the MPAA over that rating once they did deliver an NC-17 uh, because of some of the nudity and the, the orgy sequence. Oh, so, yeah, there are, there are um, orgies. Yes, just, just kind of one big one. Um, oh, but but uh, One is to assume there have been multiple <laughs> yes, orgies. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a recurring event. Um, but uh, so, you know, they were, they were kind of in a, in a real predicament because there are so many people that are clamoring to see like the final masterwork of this legendary director and they can't release it into most theaters the way an NC-17 works in the United States. It's, it's a real problem commercially. So what they arrived at as a compromise was that they use CGI to put these kind of ridiculous looking, very static, very like Uncanny Valley-esque nude figures standing with their back to the camera in front of the more explicit action. And in this way, they didn't have to actually alter, like, the rhythm of the cutting or reshoot anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it absolutely stands out. I mean, 1999, the this, this state of creating those kinds of, you know, post-production human-like figures was was not great. Yeah, so. still not super great. Yeah. I don't know if you saw Rogue One, but that <laughs> yeah. Grand Moff Tarkin or whatever yeah. totally took me out of that movie, man. That Uncanny Valley effect is mm-hmm. uh, is is alive and well. And so they um, – but in Europe, they, they did get the unfiltered, unaltered version right away. And now if you buy the movie on Blu-ray in the U.S. or, or DVD – or probably streaming, it's it's also the uh, the unaltered version. It is not like as an option. Like it is. Yeah, the yeah. I think it just defaults mm-hmm. to it. It doesn't even. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but so, I, I think it is. D- so well, what was being covered? Is it like penetration? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. people on a table, and you can kind of see what's going on. So gotcha. there's there's like people kind of standing in front. I mean, there's there's really nothing like super graphic about any of it, but it, you know, it doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination. Probably nothing that we haven't already seen in like films like Caligula for example. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like there were all these rumors when he was making the film that it was like going to be triple X rated and it was like the most 
explicit thing ever. Um, and then when the film actually came out, I think most people were kind of like, this is like way more tame than we were told to expect. It's because they cut out the, the puppet lovemaking scene that <laughs> right. was going to be in there. Which was the uh, original second title of the film, yeah. Puppet Lovemaking Scene yep. by Stanley Kubrick. Yep. So there's one other elephant in the orgy room here, and it is the Illuminati. Yeah, the masks and the robes mm. and the rituals. The idea, the idea is that Kubrick, by way of being in the entertainment industry, got embroiled in a massive global Freemason Illuminati conspiracy, and he devoted much of his career to referencing this through symbols and codes, just like the moon landing shining argument, which is that Kubrick made the shining as sort of insurance to save his life from this cabal. The eyes wide shut Illuminati argument says that he, while he was always pushing the envelope, he actually crossed the line for this secretive cabal when he depicted specifically trauma-based mind control similar to concepts that explored in things like Project Monarch and other other related theories and that instead of uh, Kubrick passing away after turning in the film, he was assassinated. Hmm. So one of the big questions that I think we should ask about this concept is if this group is so powerful – and if they were so worried that they killed him after he turned in the final cut, where were they when he was filming the thing? Well, it took – Casey, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it took like 18 Yes, it was a very, or, very long shoot. And yeah. when, you, when you consider that, you know, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are both like extremely in-demand actors at that moment and even now, you know, for that matter, um, they, they really had to kind of shut their lives down and just like dedicate everything to – being on this shoot and um, miss out on a billion dollars yeah, worth of probably. movies. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, it, it is interesting, though, when you think about some of the things, at least that I was reading in that Vanity Fair article, about the weird ways of shooting. Well, they were, they would shoot Tom Cruise on a set with essentially green screen or projected images behind Back, yeah, him. Yeah, rear, rear, like old school rear projection. Mm -hmm. For in the UK mm -hmm. for weeks. Yeah. Like, just get that one shot of him walking around and just force Tom Cruise to do that for weeks. And it makes me wonder if he's kind of – if this um, theory holds true that he's kind of obfuscating what's actually going sure. into the movie and what's actually – what the symbols that he's I showing. See. OK. Maybe that was a strategy. Like I, a, a red herring, false trails. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. There's definitely like a dreamlike kind of feeling that he's trying to convey. And mm -hmm. even though he does have like second unit – photography happening in in actual new york when you look at the movie it, it doesn't really feel like new york it kind of feels like a dream idea of what new york is and mm -hmm. yeah i i don't know i i i'm kind of tempted to think that it was less about like putting tom cruise through the ringer for the heck of it and probably more down to just you know technical perfectionism of kubrick's part to to have it not feel like a, just a bogus effect shot or something got you so this is by and large where the conversation about Eyes Wide Shut lives. Uh, we do know that Stanley Kubrick was no stranger to conspiracy theories on his own. There's a famous scene in Dr. Strangelove where he mentions fluoride. Oh, yeah, <laughs> talking about fluoride. <laughs> Casey, you don't happen to know a quote or anything, do you? Uh, I'm trying to think about the the, the one that I'm thinking of is to deny 
women my essence, but... Um, <laughs> I think in this one, they're having a discussion about fluoride in the water, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Th- I do remember that. that is yeah, I have, a, I have a quote here that might be helpful. Uh, I'm not going to do the voice, but it's... it's is it a conversation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mandrake, do you realize that in addition to fluoridate and water, why there are studies underway to fluoridate salt... Flour, fruit juice, soup, sugar, milk, ice cream, ice cream, Mandrake, children's ice cream. Oh, Lord, Jack. You know when fluoridation first began? I, uh, no. 1946. 1946, Mandrake. How does that coincide with your post-war commie conspiracy, huh? It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual. Certainly without any choice. That's the way your hardcore commie works. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty classic scene from the film. We don't know for sure Stanley Kubrick's personal thoughts on uh, fluoride, but we do <laughs> know his personal thoughts on the concept of extraterrestrial intelligence. Oh, yes. We found an excerpt from Playboy magazine. A 19... triple excerpt. <laughs> oh, actually, I think around that time, it's probably like double X maybe. Well, Playboy was never triple X. They've always yeah. been soft. <laughs> God, I'm really demonstrating my knowledge of porn. <laughs> <in some sense. laughs> um, Noel, would you like to regale us with some of that? Boy, would I. 1968, by the way, Playboy magazine, Stanley Kubrick. <clears throat> 2001 A Space Odyssey has just come out. I'm going to do my Kubrick voice. Extraterrestrials may have progressed from biological species, which are fragile shells for the mind at best, into immortal machine entities, and then over innumerable eons they could emerge from the chrysalis of matter, transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. That doesn't really. I don't know. I know. You I love you gotta it. You got to get Please. more, uh, more, uh, more Bronx. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can't do Bronx. No, I can only do evil, uh, evil, That's, evil overlord. Keep going. This is great. These beings would be gods to the billions of less advanced races in the universe, just as man would appear a god to an ant. So here he's talking specifically about the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence existing. He's not saying they exist here. We've taken an excerpt, but yeah, uh, he's just postulating on what it would be like. And uh, he makes a point, which is actually pretty flattering for us when you think about it. Uh, He makes the same point that we made in previous episodes, which is that the idea of inorganic life forms being the successful explorers of the stars is a little more likely than organic life forms. Yes. And he even gets into that. Mm Mm-hmm. The important point is that all the standard attributes assigned to God in our history could equally well be the characteristics of biological entities who, billions of years ago, were at a stage of development similar to man's own and evolved into something as remote from man as man is remote from the primordial ooze from which he first emerged. That was a great... I mean, just... Yeah, that's great. And just... Uh, great job, great thought. I know oh, yeah, I know that's yeah. an agglomeration of other people's thoughts in a way sure. from Stanley Kubrick, but still it's it's well well told. Would you say it's well uh framed? Oh <laughs> there you go. Oh, sorry guys. Well, in conclusion, first we know this episode ran a little bit long, but we hope you enjoyed it as much as we have today. Uh in conclusion, there's no question that Kubrick's work lends itself to a vast array of interpretation. That's the thing about interpretations of works of art. 
interpretations are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right? Absolutely. And ultimately, it could be argued that all works of art belong to the audience perceiving them in mm. terms of the meaning, right? Because once the artist is dead, then they have no real say. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, a very controversial point. I used to hate it when my professors pointed that out. Well, especially if you're an artist that just wants to allow your stuff to speak for itself and you don't want to be talking to press all the time. Right. You don't want to have to go through every little frame and say, this is what this means. <sighs> I'm, I'm teaching you. I'm telling you how to read my films and you're not doing it. Get out of my sight. I'm going back to the UK. Right. <laughs> and the intensely symbolic nature of the stories Kubrick specifically tells arguably communicate to the audience on a semi or subconscious level, accessing those primal archetypes cited by people like Carl Jung or Fraser, the author of The Golden Bow, or Joseph Campbell. And again, that Cormac McCarthy article, I probably already posted it on Here's Where It Gets Crazy, but we're posting it again. By golly, by gum, it's worth it. In the case of The Shining and the moon landing theory, the interpretations do honestly seem pretty subjective, but fascinating and compelling. Problem is some inaccuracies poke holes in the case. As for the idea of a secret cabal functioning behind the scenes, pulling the strings of industries, religions, and governments across the world, well, the entertainment industry certainly does have a version of that. They are called producers. Oh, burn. <laughs> All you producers out there. Uh, and this is one thing I just wanted to speak to, to Casey as well about this uh, in general. There is a frenetic pace that's inherent in the filmmaking process where I don't know if any of you out there have had the experience of being on a set of any kind, either for a student film, a school project. Uh, maybe Maybe you've worked on a big production before, but if so, you know that – there are major changes that occur to everything from the script to the set dressing to the camera angle that's going to be used and the lens and everything in between. It happens in real time when you have a director with a, with a vision who is seeing something that isn't necessarily written down. Oh, or, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean and, – and again, the reason that Kubrick – needed eight, 18 months to shoot Eyes Wide Shut, which if you watch the final film, it's kind of baffling how it could take so long to shoot it because it's a lot of like simple interiors and a couple people in a room talking. But it is because exactly that, that he wanted to be able to try things this way, do a scene here, do a scene there, you know, change the location, change the lighting. Um, there were even actors that dropped out because they couldn't keep doing the movie. So some stuff had to be reshot in that way. So, I mean, he, he very much like looked at, he, he prepared his films meticulously, but he still, they were like very much kind of living documents that he was making um, when, when it came time to shoot them. And if you want to, uh, just to see an example of this, there's a great clip on YouTube where you can see behind the scenes shining footage where you can see Kubrick actually making these decisions about how to get the shot with, um, with Jack Nicholson standing at the door talking yes. talking to his wife and this really low angle shot that he's just kind of messing around as they're hanging around trying to figure out how to frame the thing. Stanley gets down below and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, let's try this one. Yeah, yeah he's got the director's viewfinder and he lays down. And he's just like, yeah, let's do it from here. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of thing occurs in filmmaking all the time. And sometimes when you think about someone like Stanley Kubrick making these films that every moment is planned out in a notebook somewhere in a grimoire that he's got, here are my plans. Mm -hmm. um, it probably isn't the way it worked out. 
Unless it's Alfred Hitchcock, and then maybe, because <laughs> he always said, you know, I make my movies before the yeah. camera ever comes on. And we should also uh, we should also note that Alfred Hitchcock was a monster off screen. Hmm. To his to his uh, talent, at least. Yeah, his yeah. Cast. He called them cattle. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, which I think one time, Casey, when we were shooting some video, I think I heard you say something like that too. Only <laughs> as a joke. Only as a joke. All right. Well, Casey Pegram, thank you so much for joining us today on the show and imparting some of your Kubrick wisdom to us and the audience. And of course, thank you, as we said, for tuning in. Uh, this is the end of today's episode, but not our show. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Well, that's it for this episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. You can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.